How to be a fraudulent disciple. And I'm going with this title because I want to tie it in to Travis's last five messages, which have all been about how to be an excellent disciple. How to be an excellent disciple. He's, he's gone through step by step how to be an excellent disciple as it relates to authority, humility, fecundity, which means fruitfulness, and fidelity, which means faithfulness. He talked about that's how to be an excellent disciple. To be fraudulent means unjustifiably claiming or being credited with particular accomplishments or qualities. Last week, if you remember, Travis talked about the characteristic of fidelity or faithfulness when it comes to discipleship from the end of Luke 6. If you remember, he challenged us to think hard about Jesus' penetrating question in Luke 6.46, where he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not do what I say? I don't know about you, but that, that caused some trouble with me this week. That had me asking questions like this. If Jesus were standing in front of me, asking me that question, asking me, Josh, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not do what I say? Would I know immediately what he was talking about? Would I have that in me already? Would I know what he was referring to in my life? And then if there was something like that in me, what am I doing about it? So I want you to think back to how Travis ended his sermon last week by demonstrating that Christ chooses to end the Sermon on the Mount with a word of warning. He reminded us that there are many out there who believe themselves to be his disciples because of the building they are building, but they have a facade of fidelity, no real foundation. Remember he said that these are people who are confident in their building for really no other reason than that they call him Lord. That's, that's what I wanted to remind us of in the reading from Matthew 25, these parables that Jesus talks about to show us that there's a, a whole category, a whole category of people who call Jesus Lord or believe themselves to be his servant that will discover one day that he never knew them at all. And will cast them into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. We were reminded last week that what makes us disciples isn't that we are around the right people and it's not that we're saying the right things. Remember Travis said, what counts to the Lord is obedience. It's faithfulness. So today I, I want to pick up on that warning by using an Old Testament example of what fake faithfulness looks like. Specifically through the story of King Saul from 1 Samuel 15, when he is rejected by God as king. To do that, I, I want to take kind of a look at the history of Saul. All right, so, so as we talk about King Saul, through the, through the benefit of hindsight, we know just how bad a person that Saul was. We all kind of know that now, as we've because we, we, we know who David is, and we know just how important David was, the king who follows after Saul. And, and we know that Saul spent a huge chunk of his life trying to murder David. And then kind of towards the end of his life, he even goes and, and visits a witch. Uh, we know that he, had, he was not good, that he wasn't faithful. 
But, but the story today, the story from 1 Samuel 15, was before anyone knew who David was yet. And there was a lot to be hopeful for in King Saul. And I just want to argue today that there's probably a large amount of those, uh, of those in churches today, who claim to be disciples of Jesus, who have a devotion to Christ that is frighteningly similar to Saul's. The only difference is that they, or maybe you, have not yet had it directly pointed out by God, but it will be pointed out. It will be pointed out by him, either by really paying attention to the Word of God through, through sermons like this one and, and the ones that Travis has been doing, and, and by taking those and comparing your life to these words, that's one way it could be pointed out to you, or it might be pointed out to you by Jesus himself on that day in Matthew 25, where those on the left still ignorantly calling him Lord, even though he's never known them before, are cast away forever. Today, we're going to study this narrative from the life of Saul. And I want to point out six characteristics, six characteristics of a fraudulent disciple. But first, I want to spend a good amount of time talking about who Saul was. I really want to build that up. So um, just kind of, we'll kind of maybe flip through uh, these last chapters of 1 Samuel. Early on, we're in, in chapter 9, verse 2, we're told that Saul is an impressive young man, that he's handsome, that he's a head taller than the rest of the Israelites. Physically, he looks like a leader. And we see early on even, just after he has been anointed to become king, that Saul seems to have a, a, even a special relationship with God. Because in, in chapter 10, we see him, he's prophesying uh, with a group of prophets, and people are astonished by this. People are astonished by who Saul is and, and what he's doing. In 1024, Samuel says that uh, there's no one else like Saul in all of Israel. It's a good thing. And if you look in chapter 11, you can see the heading there. He leads a great victory over the Ammonites. And it's such a convincing victory. It's such a convincing victory. And Saul looks so much like the obvious choice to be the leader of God's people. That, that look, what, look at uh, down in chapter 11. Flip back a few pages. Chapter 11, verses 12 through 15. After this victory that Saul leads, the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So we see in, in this section that the people are so convinced that Saul is worthy to be king, the king, the leader of God's people, that they are ready to put to death anyone who, who spoke otherwise ahead of time. They're ready to put them to death. And we also see what looks like a godly characteristic in Saul in that he grants them mercy. And he says, no, no, none of them shall die. 
None of those people shall be put to death. So he he looks like this strong warrior, and he looks at least a little bit like he has mercy. He has some of these attributes of God. He's been prophesying. So at this point, things are looking pretty good for Saul as Israel's king. And then we get to chapter 13. We get to chapter 13, and and just read with me uh, verses 8 through 14. He waited seven days. This is Saul, waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offerings here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be the prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. In in chapter 10, in chapter 10, we kind of skipped that, but Samuel told Saul at this point that he needed to wait uh, to wait to attack the Philistines for seven days until Samuel could get there and offer sacrifices. And we're told that Saul began noticing that his men were getting impatient and leaving, and he didn't want to go into battle without the favor of the Lord. So he offered the sacrifices himself, even though they're supposed to be offered by Samuel, by a priest. So what you need to see here is that what Saul has done is, is kind of mixing a desire to be obedient with God and, and noticing the circumstances around him and then making his decision of what he's going to do. So, so we need to kind of notice what's going on here because it establishes a pattern in Saul's life. Saul is the type of person who has some sort of understanding about God and he wants to please God, but he does it in the way that seems best to him. He takes Samuel's instruction and he makes it work in kind of a convenient way that allows him to continue to do what he wants to do. Saul acknowledged that what God says is important and can't be ignored, but he filters God's commands through his own desires and his own ambitions. As a result, Samuel tells Saul that his line will not continue on the throne, meaning his son, Jonathan, would not be king. It's interesting as we look ahead that we're not told that Saul was grieved or bothered in any way over this news. In light of how we're going to see that he responds in 1 Samuel 15 when he finds out that he himself will no longer be king. So quickly, kind of moving on in the narrative, we see in chapter 14 that the pronouncement of Saul's son not becoming king is unfortunate because it turns out that Jonathan is a brave and wise warrior. Uh, There's this story of Jonathan going in and and almost single-handedly defeating the Philistines. 
But while Jonathan is away, Saul makes a vow that, that if anyone eats before his enemies, the Philistines are destroyed, they will be put to death. He makes this it's called Saul's rash vow. Uh, he's, he's so intent on defeating the Philistines that he proclaims to all that no one's going to eat until they are defeated. But Jonathan is away, you know, beating the Philistines, and he doesn't hear this. And he takes his staff and he dips it in honey and he eats this honey. And when Saul finds out that Jonathan did this, he's prepared to put Jonathan to death. And the people rebel and call for Saul not to follow through with this because he can't put to death the guy who saved the day for us. But Saul's prepared to do it. And that kind of says something about Saul also, that, that before the people, he wants them to see that his, his word is his bond. Like he's so willing to follow through with his word that he's willing to put his own son to death. So he might equate that with kind of a good characteristic, but, but notice that it also begins to show that, that he really thinks highly of his word as compared to maybe what he thinks of God's word. We also see in, the, in that little narrative that when the people do go forward and they defeat the Philistines, they haven't eaten in so long that it says they pounce on the spoil and they start attacking, they start grabbing the animals and they're so hungry they start eating the meat with the blood still in it, which is... Uh, against the law of the Lord. And we notice here another kind of good sign about Saul, that Saul expresses concern that his men are sinning, and he orders them to come and he bring, and bring the animals that they slaughtered and bring them back down, and he, he wants them to stop sinning by eating this meat with blood in it. And then chapter 14 ends again on a good note, as we see this picture of Saul valiantly striking down the enemies of Israel. And, and he's, he's defeating them, and he's taking care of uh, Israel, and he's striking them down in the sweeping victory. And this is where we pick up then in chapter 15. Things are actually looking good for Saul. We've seen some major sin and pride issues in his life, but we've also seen a lot of good signs and even what appears to be a reverence for God and his word. And so this is where we pick it up in 1 Samuel 15. Let's read that together. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go. And strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them and telling him, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction, all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless 
they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. 
And Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So, back in the beginning there of, of chapter 15, that hope that we had at the end of chapter 14 about Saul, it's confirmed. It's confirmed in the first three verses of chapter 15 when Samuel appears again to give Saul a special message and mission. God speaks to Saul through Samuel and entrusts him with a special mission. When we read this mission, granted, it doesn't sound very special to us. It sounds horrifying, and we can't imagine God saying something like this because of many misunderstandings we have about the holiness of God. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because it's not the point of the passage, but this is the reason a lot of people avoid this passage. Just remember that God is just and loving and good, and his ways and thoughts are far above our own. This, what's going on here, this is a sin issue. When God judges a nation to be absolutely corrupt and wicked in the Old Testament, he wipes it out to keep their sin from growing and their judgment from increasing. When you think of it that way, it's actually a mercy to this nation because God is declaring that it is better for every one of their lives to end at whatever stage they are in right now than for them to continue in the ways that they're continuing in, growing in their sin, growing in their condemnation. As each generation, for almost 400 years since God first said the Amalekites would be destroyed, is getting worse and worse. This is similar to what God did in the flood or similar to what he did with Jericho. Sometimes God uses a flood to judge a people that's heading towards an endless cycle of corruption that's getting worse and worse and worse, and sometimes he uses an army. And this is why Saul is commanded to destroy every single thing, even the animals, because this is what's important about it. It has to be evident. It has to be evident to everyone around that what is happening here is the judgment of God on this nation. It's not just some nation conquering another nation. It needs to be seen and it needs to be known that this is the judgment of God on this nation. When we see Saul being given this mission, we need to see it as an amazing honor for him. This is a special honor because this is the Amalekites. And what God is doing through Saul here is fulfilling a promise that he'd made almost 400 years earlier. Right? If you remember, in, in Exodus 17, we're told that uh, on their way out of Egypt, the Israelites are attacked by the Amalekites. They come out and attack them on their way. It's that story where Moses has to hold up the staff, remember? For when he's holding up the staff, then the Israelites are winning, and when he starts to drop it down, then the Amalekites win, and so uh, they come and help him hold up the staff uh, so the Israelites win. But God promises that the Amalekites will pay for this. In Exodus 17, 14 through 16, we read this. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. 
And then we hear again in Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 19, the Lord reiterates this promise. He says, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you. And he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you, in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. So see what's happening here. Saul is being given the responsibility of fulfilling this promise of God. This is a, a holy task he's being tasked with, to be the agent of the Lord's judgment. This is a big deal. This is something that Saul could go back and look in the book of the law and see this promise that God made. He's, he's using me to fulfill it. It's an honor. So this looks good for Saul. God is still ready to work through him. In verses 4 through 7, we see some examples of Saul being mighty and maybe even good as he prepares for this task. If you remember from that little section, we saw that he gets this large army together demonstrating that he is the type of leader who people will follow into battle. He is that type. And he warns, he even warns the Kenites to get out. And this is actually, this is wise and this is merciful and it shows that he has uh, that he knows his nation's history because the Kenites were ones who assisted the Israelites in the Exodus. And he's unwilling to let them get caught in the destruction. And then in verse 7, it shows that Saul leads his army to a sweeping victory, to what most on the outside would think was just a sweeping victory in a rout. So, okay, stop there and think about everything now that we know about Saul. We've definitely seen he has some sin problems. He also has shown wisdom. He's shown might. He's shown leadership. He's shown an understanding of what God wants and a desire to do the right thing. This is all that we knew. And we didn't know the rest of the Bible. We didn't know the fact that we... Uh, that we know that, that, again, Saul's going to spend most of the rest of his life trying to kill David, trying to murder him, and that he's the type of guy who ends up going to a witch. We might be inclined to say, hey, he's a pretty good guy. Sure, he has his issues, but he's doing a pretty good job, like on a percentage basis. No one's perfect, right? This is pretty important because that sounds like a lot of us. Because of the rest because of the rest of his life, we know now that Saul was not really ever a follower of God. We see the drastic difference between his heart and the heart of David. But there was a time when this was not so, when it hadn't been exposed yet. So like I said earlier, I fear that many in the churches across our country are like Saul. Now, they're not really a disciple they're not aware of it yet. Unfortunately, the rest of this passage can help us to test ourselves. So I want to draw your attention to these six characteristics of being a fake or fraudulent disciple. And this passage points out six warning signs of that your discipleship might be just a deception. 
First characteristic of a false disciple that we see here is incomplete obedience. Incomplete obedience. We see that in verses 7 through 9, where it says that as Saul defeated the Amalekites from Avila as far, as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt, he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, and the oxen, the fattened calves, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. And all that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So you see that Saul actually mostly obeys. He mostly obeys. You might call this also what we see Saul doing here, a selective obedience. Saul obeyed the part that he enjoyed doing, or at the very least, the part which was easier for him to obey, or he did the part that made sense to him. And that's what we see when it says they devoted everything worthless to destruction. Right? So Saul was completely willing to obey God to the point that it made sense to him. So I can see, God, why you'd want all of, all of the Amalekites gone. They're evil. They're bad. But you know, there, there's a lot of good food there, and that seems like a waste. Since Saul, Saul has seen something like this, so that, that's, that's good stuff. Why, why would we want that to go to waste? The reason that you don't get something like partial credit with God when you obey God like this is because that it shows that your heart is not actually in line with God's heart at all. If you only do the things that aren't a big deal to you, the things that you agree with, it shows you think that your wisdom is on par with the wisdom of God. It shows that you don't actually trust God. It doesn't show that you trust him a little bit. It shows that you don't trust him at all. Those who would consider themselves Christians do this frequently. It's pursuing our own good in the guise of obedience. When we see people who refuse to give or spend their time or money on others, we say things like, wow, that person is, is selfish. Or that, that person's really a Scrooge. But pursuing your own good Pursuing your own good while pretending to be doing something out of devotion to God is a much worse type of selfishness because you're mocking God by dragging his name into your sinful self-service. You make a, a sacrificial decision to obey God or to do something good, but we make sure that certain people know about it and see it. Or we want to make sure it, it helps us feel better about something we've done in the past. It's that type of obedience, obedience that benefits us. Know this. Anytime that you hear, or that you read what God wants you to do, and you don't fully obey it, you show that it's not actually God that you're interested in obeying at all. It's not actually him that you're interested in obeying if you're not willing to do the thing 
that you don't want to do. Second characteristic, second characteristic of a false disciple is pride. And we see that in verses 10 through 12. After the battle, after Saul doesn't fully obey, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. It says, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And this, this pride isn't just any type of pride. He, he's actually proud in his incomplete obedience. It's a pride that comes from, from a place of, of complete ignorance about what the reality of the situation actually is. But notice what's going on here. God is expressing sorrow and grieving to Samuel over making Saul king. Just real quick, it says the word is translated uh, regret here, but we know that it it means sorrow or grief because it can also mean those two things because the only other place in Scripture where this word is used with God as the subject is in Genesis 6 before the flood when he says God regretted that he had made man. When a word like this is applied to humans, It might mean something along the lines of that, that we wish we wouldn't have done that, but it doesn't ever mean that for God when it's applied to God because of the truth of what is said just a few verses later in verse 29. Look at what the author of 1 Samuel says in verse 29. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. So the author is not an idiot. He doesn't just say something and then contradict it a few verses later, forget what he said. No, it's uh, the, the point is that God is grieved over Saul's decision not to fully obey. And Samuel cries to the Lord all night. And he's, he's angry over Saul's disobedience because his heart is in tune with God's heart. His heart is in tune with God's heart. Because people who are real followers grieve over sin and disobedience. They grieve over it. Notice that God calls it disobedience, too. He says, he has not performed my commandments. He doesn't call it, he doesn't say, he only mostly performed my commandments. And he tells the situation for what it really is. Saul has not followed through with the commandments. He has not obeyed. He doesn't give him credit for that partial obedience. Well, God is grieved over Saul's sin, and while Samuel is up all night crying because of Saul's rebellion against the Lord, what is Saul doing? He's building a monument to himself. Saul has no problem taking credit for the victory. Now, this is just, actually, this is just one big demonstration of what is actually going on here. What's really going on here is that Saul is worshiping himself. It's evident that he takes pride in the victory, and he takes credit for the victory. He sets up this monument. Notice the order in which he does stuff. He says, sets up this monument first. He sets up this monument first, and then he goes to Gilgal to sacrifice to God, where the sacrifices to God would take place. And this is something you have to test your heart in. 
Do you give all credit to God when you are able to obey, knowing that without His Spirit it would be impossible to ever do anything pleasing to God? Or do you take pride in how you aren't like some other people? Maybe you're one of those people who sees all the people out there involved in affairs and divorces and fornication, and you look down on those people and maybe think about their weak faith while regularly struggling with maybe pornography or lust or some of the stuff that no one else sees. You know, you're, you're mostly obeying the big commands, and you're proud of that. Do you look with disdain on those who are caught in sin, or do you grieve over them and then humbly confess, but for the grace of God, so go I. Being proud of your, of your godly accomplishments is a sure sign that you are blind to sin in your life. Third characteristic. Third characteristic of false discipleship is making your disobedience sound righteous. Making your disobedience sound righteous. This is what Saul does in verses 13 through 15. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Saul, Saul is so clueless about his fake obedience that he is genuinely excited to see Samuel and to tell him about the victory and to tell him about his obedience. Like that's, the, that's just what comes out of his mouth first. I did it. I obeyed the voice of the Lord. This is why it's so important to study these things in Scripture that we're looking at today and what, what we've talked about and, and, and heard from Travis in the, over the last few weeks. Because if your discipleship is fake, you likely don't realize it. Just like those people in Matthew 25 who don't find out until that day, until the final day of judgment. Saul says, I did it. I performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel does what a good disciple does. He points out the evidence that's right there to the contrary. And when this happens, Saul does exactly what so many of us might do. He quickly makes an excuse for the crystal clear evidence that has been set before him. Right? It's, it's right there. The evidence of his disobedience is, is making barnyard noises all around him like an alarm blaring out his guilt. It's like a, like a kid, like a kid with chocolate frosting all over his face claiming he doesn't know uh, what happened to the brownies when his parents ask him. That's what we see here. And, and what is Saul's response to this evidence? Push it aside and and point out his godliness. He makes this refusal. He makes his refusal to he makes his refusal to do what he was commanded sound like he's doing something righteous. We took the best of the sheep and the best of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord. 
And how often do we see this? And I'm not going to church because I need this job. I need this much better paying job. So I'll, so I'll have more money to give. So I'll have more money to give to people. More, I, can, I can help the church out with more of this money. Or I need, to watch, I need to watch these type of movies and listen to this type of music. Yeah, I know it's bad. Yeah, trust me. But, but I'm, I'll be better able to minister to those in this culture if I know this stuff. I don't want to be... I want to be out there. I want to be able to relate. Things along the lines of, I'm, I'm not going to do that, but, but you know, I'm sure but, that God understands me. He gets what I'm thinking. He knows I love him. You know, how dare you say I don't love him just based on my actions? You don't know my heart. God knows my heart. Oh, and that's true, though. We're so blind to this kind of stuff in our own lives, like we've talked about, the last few sermons in here. We're so blind to this kind of stuff in our own lives that we need others pointing it out to us like Samuel does here. This is why we have the church. It makes sense that others will see sin in your life that you don't see. It makes sense. It makes sense that we need those who we have, who have personality conflicts with to point stuff out to us. It is so bad when they bring it to our attention, and instead of listening and praying and re- repenting, we immediately point out all the other godly stuff that you, you're just not seeing this godly stuff. You're kind of negative. Notice how he makes the disobedient part sound godly. He makes that part sound godly, and then, he, and then he focuses on the part that he did do right. But the rest we did, we did devote the rest of it to destruction, though. We've seen this, right? We see this. This is who you are if you're the type of person that can't take rebuke or criticism from others and you quickly brush it aside, whatever valid, obvious thing someone might be pointing out to you in your life, and then you go and you reassure yourself with the things that you feel good about. Fourth sign. Fourth sign is blaming others for our sin, for our disobedience, blaming others or, or other circumstances. This is probably the most obvious one that we see frequently. This is what we see in verses 16 through 21. We've already kind of seen a little bit of him being like this. Samuel just stopped Saul and says, stop. I'll tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, Are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. The Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites. Fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Samuel stops Saul in the middle of his excuses. Just stop. I, I love that word. Stop. Just stop. I'll tell you what you did. He reminds him of all that he has been given, 
all the blessings he has received from the Lord, picking him out of the least of the tribes to be king over the whole nation of Israel. And then he reminds him of what the actual command from this God was. And Saul takes credit for the obedience, and he's totally blind to the fact, totally blind to the fact that by keeping Agag alive, he is disobeying. He, he still hasn't seen that yet in this story. Now, that's not, Samuel pointed out the, the sheep and the oxen. He still doesn't understand the Agag thing. He's blind to it. Just goes back to show what we said before, that Saul was never really interested in really obeying God. Instead, all Saul is concerned about is making excuses for the one sin that Samuel actually brought up earlier, the fact that they left the best livestock alive. And he reminds Samuel, I did obey. I did obey. And the things that weren't obeyed, that, that's kind of the fault of the people. Right? He, he did this a little earlier. He, he did the, almost the same thing. But now he, he's kind of doubling down on that. He's reminding, he's kind of reminding Samuel, remember the people that did this? It's the people. And remember, Saul did this same thing in chapter 13, when we read from earlier, where he offers that sacrifice. He offers that sacrifice before Samuel gets there because Samuel was taking too long and because the people were starting to leave. Remember, he says his wording in 13 is funny. He says, I forced myself to offer the sacrifice. I forced myself to do it. It had to be done. He's still standing by the fact that they had noble reasons for sparing the best of the flock, but it was really the people who did it. And this is how it always is ever since Genesis 3. People trying to save face by pointing to the person next to them, by, or by pointing to the circumstances that they're in. It wasn't me. It was this person or these people I'm around or this situation I was in. Difficult not to sin there. When you do that, you're always essentially pointing the finger at a sovereign God, right? You're essentially saying, you know, God, if you really didn't want me to do this, there's other stuff you could have done to prevent me from it. You could have kept me, that guy away from me. Could have kept that girl away from me. Could have kept me out of this situation a little better. And to take note of this warning, when you're confronted with sin... When you're confronted with sin, is your first response for you to figure out who's responsible for it? Do you immediately look outside of yourself and try to point to a reason outside of yourself to explain the sin? Take note of that warning. Fifth warning sign. Fifth warning sign implied by Samuel's statement. This is probably the most famous passage uh, in this story, fifth warning sign is placing spirituality above obedience. Placing spirituality above obedience. And we see that in Samuel's warning here in verses 22 and 23. Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also 
or he has also rejected you from being king. Placing spirituality over obedience is a big deal because you cannot pit the two against each other. Contrary to what this culture teaches frequently, there is no true relationship with God apart from obedience. There isn't one. You can't come to him without a heart that doesn't strive to obey him. You can go to church and sing songs and read your Bible and have Bible studies and do whatever, but it's all a charade. None of it's real unless you have a heart that longs to obey God. That's what Samuel calls it. He calls it rebellion. He says it's not partial obedience, Saul. It's rebellion. You who have great church attendance but refuse to forgive someone, you are in rebellion against God. Or maybe you engage in all kinds of religious activities, but you're, you're just kind of a bitter person and you kind of excuse that. It's rebellion against God. You have people who have brought up certain sins to you and you're easily able to dismiss them and focus on all the good that you're doing. It's rebellion against God. It's rebellion against him. There is no motive that you can think of, that you can think of that is more important than true obedience. And it is just so dangerous for us to think that we are just kind of, I'm just an imperfect disciple. To excuse it with that, or that now I'll get there someday if that's our attitude towards obedience. If that's our attitude towards obedience, you will, you'll never get there if that's your attitude towards obedience to God. There's a huge difference between being a young disciple and being a fake disciple. An immature disciple is one that maybe has some really obvious sins, but he's dealing with them. He's addressing them and, and working to kill them in his life. A false disciple is one that sees or hears about the sin in their own life and just doesn't really care to do anything about it yet. I'll get there someday. Right now I'm working on reading my Bible more and praying more, and someday I'll work on obeying better. Those false disciples' words. You're not an immature disciple in that case. You're no disciple at all. In fact, Samuel says it's the same as divination, which is witchcraft, which is ironic because that's a sin that Saul falls into later. So what we can see here is that you may see yourself if you're one of those people who doesn't strive for obedience but does all these religious activities. You might see yourself as not much different than what Jesus is calling you to be not much different than a, than a real disciple. But in reality, you're a lot closer to a Satanist. Final sign, the sixth sign of fraudulent discipleship, one I think we need to be most concerned about here is fake repentance. Fake repentance. We see this in 24 through 30. Let's look at that again. After hearing this rebuke from Samuel, Saul says, I have sinned 
For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, Saul said, I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. Now, if you look at the beginning of that section, he finally gets it right, at least in his language. He's saying the right thing. This sounds like real repentance. He admits the exact thing that happened to him, the exact thing that he was guilty of. Not only does he admit that he has sinned against the Lord, but there's no more covering it up. There's no more blaming others. He even admits that he did it because he feared the people and obeyed their voice over God's. And we need to see that if, if we were calling someone to repentance, this is exactly what we would want to hear them say, repeating biblical language back to us. I have sinned. I have transgressed against the Lord. I feared the people. I fear of man. And I obeyed their voice. He even makes it sound like the thing he wants to be able to do is to worship the Lord again. And, and notice that Saul, is, he, he, he actually brings in that extra information that's been implied throughout the story, but it hasn't been spoken yet. He was fearing man. He was fearing the people. He was obeying their voice. He admits that readily. He's not making excuse or blame shifting. He's taking it all on himself here. And what we have to be so careful of is that even though Saul said the exact right thing, he meant none of it. We can see this in his response. Because Samuel is determined to leave. And Saul grabs Samuel's robe and tears his robe. He's trying to keep him there. This is not, though, an act of repentance it's a false showing of some sort of reverence. Look, look again. Look at verse 30, what he says. I have sinned. Yeah, honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. He's only concerned about his standing before the people. He's still only concerned about how other people see him. That's his concern. It doesn't actually matter that he said all the right things. He wasn't doing it because he wanted a restored relationship with God. He was doing it for his standing in front of other people. Even though he, he just repented of that, he's still clinging to that sin. Or he just fake repented of that, I should say. He wants the people to still love him, and Samuel to think better of him. And he doesn't actually care what 
God says or thinks. We need to ask, is, is that us? Is that, is that you? You've been around the church, Christians, long enough that you know the language of repentance. But do you do it? Do you ever actually do it? Maybe you've been confronted on something and you do just enough, just enough to get the people off your back. And there's still a lot of it, though, that you're still working on hiding from people. You might even be proud of this. You might even point to the the little part that you worked on, even though it was for other people, and point to that and, and, and kind of soothe yourself into thinking you're good. Do you really think you're fooling God? You might know that you're not fooling God, but, but that's okay to you because it really isn't him that you're worried about impressing anyway. This is, this is a really dangerous one, this fake repentance. Are your heartfelt words and even the tears that you may cry in that moment when you are really confessing your sin, is that just emotion or is it a real heart change? fear that there are many like this in many churches. In a sermon he gave, uh, Charles Spurgeon called out people like this. A sermon he gave where he mentions this passage even. He said, Oh, sirs, too many of you have done the same. You have bowed your heads in church and said, We have erred and strayed from thy ways. And you did not mean what you said. You have come to your minister. You have said, I repent of my sins. You did not then feel you were a sinner. You only said it to please him. And now you attend the house of God. No one more impressible than you. The tear will run down your cheek in a moment. But yet, notwithstanding all that, the tear is dried as quickly as it is brought forth. And you remain to all intents and purposes the same as you were before. To say I have sinned in an unmeaning manner is worse than worthless, for it's a mockery of God. Thus to confess with insincerity of heart. End quote. Please don't think that humility alone, that mere humility that it takes to confess your sins is the same as actual repentance. Samuel hears this word from Saul, and he stops and turns around. It's like what he heard from Saul caught his ear, and he stopped where he was going, and he turns back with Saul. And then he shows Saul what real repentance actually looks like. That's what we see in 31 through 33. So Samuel turned back after Saul. Saul bowed before the Lord. And Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord. In Gilgal. That sounds 
Quite honestly, it sounds quite different than what we read in most of the Bible. That is not a verse that the Awana kids memorize. That is not the verse you see etched on the Christian journals and Bible covers and stuff like that. But this is obeying God in this circumstance. This man was supposed to be put to death. Every breath that he took from this point was a testimony to the rebellion of Saul. If you really repent, you take immediate, aggressive action. That's what Samuel's demonstrating. If Saul cared a thing for the Lord, he would have run to obey and would have done this himself way earlier on in the passage. If there was any real change in his heart, that's what would have happened. You may say all the right things. You may cry at the right moments. But if you're not willing to take aggressive, immediate action against sin that's pointed out to you, please do not think that you are better off than Saul. Being an obedient follower of Christ means you destroy the sin in your life. You don't decide to just acknowledge that it's wrong and then kind of make peace with it and set it to the side. Real repentance is admitting the hard thing and doing the hard thing. Without both of those, it's not real repentance. It shows that your confession really wasn't about God in the first place if you just do one without the other. The story closes in verses 34 and 35. We see Samuel leaving to Ramah and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul, and Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So we see again God grieving over Saul's sin, Samuel grieving over Saul's sin, but never Saul grieving over Saul's sin. We see Saul grieving over Saul. What about you? What about us? We've seen several signs here of what a false follower looks like. They're all in relation to sin and how we respond to it. If you really understand the gospel, if you really know what sin is, it's so serious that God had to create hell to deal with it. He had to put his own son on the cross in order for us to have any type of relationship with him. And it's only through the imputation of our sins to Christ on the cross and the imputation of his righteousness onto us that we have any type of hope or confidence. If you understand the seriousness of sin, you cannot respond to the way Saul did. And if the spirit, if his spirit really dwells in you, if God's spirit really dwells in you, You'll share in his attitude about sin in your life. May God use these words to help us examine our lives. How important is obedience to you? How do you respond when you're confronted with sin? Lord, I thank you for your word. Thank you for what you show us. Oh, help us to take it seriously. All of it. We would see the story of Saul as a, as a dangerous warning for all of us. 
that if we've seen any of these things in our lives, any of these signs, that we would quickly, quickly take action against it. That we would treasure you, treasure obedience to you above anything else, above what people think, above what we think of ourselves. God, help us to examine our lives in light of this passage. In Jesus' name.